Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited to have a, a friend, and, a, and, and, and Jay Norlinger says, I don't have to call uh, people at NR uh, former colleagues, because colleague is a term of respect for people in the same profession, so... I can still say current colleague, but former coworker. He is as unique as the Marmite of his people. Uh, none other than uh, Charlie Cook. Charlie, welcome back to the Remnant. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't we start there? Um, I I don't honestly mind Jill Biden saying as unique as your breakfast tacos. She's an older lady from a community college. I am I am truly fascinated that the speechwriters let that through. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like we talk all the time about the wokeness and the language policing and all this kind of stuff. Presumably, that speech was like vetted. It was loaded into a teleprompter. And yet, I mean, it's not the biggest deal in the world. I just think it's 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 very veep like in its veepiness, if you know what I mean. What'd you take of it? Take away from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just actually wrote a piece about the total lack of linguistic rules around Latin X, and I think probably the same problem applies to the political rules around when and uh, where you're allowed to generalize racially. If I could praise my my piece for a minute she spoke of something called the latin x in clux if luncheon well my mom's a linguist so i've picked some of this up so i get the latin expert it's stupid but you get it no i get it they're trying yeah. to take away the gendered right elements within spanish which many languages have and then, presumably, they wanted to match the X that they'd added in inclusive, even though that's not a gendered word, and they made it incluxive. Not a great idea to voluntarily introduce the word clux into the American political bloodstream, but fine. But then they got to luncheon. Reintroduce, by the way. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then they got to luncheon, and they said, well, we're not doing it there. I don't know why. It could be luncheon or luxon. Anyhow, the, the the reason this cracks me up is that they came up with this name, but then she gave her whole speech without applying the same rules. So she called them Latinos throughout. So she's at the Latinx luncheon, but she's calling them Latinos. And she called it San Antonio, and she said taco and bodega. All of those are gendered words. So mm-hmm. I, I don't really understand how this 
is supposed to work. And I suppose I feel the same way about what she said in her strange generalization. I mean, there are circumstances and we can all immediately work out what they are in which what she said would had the food type and race or ethnic group been different have been obviously racist. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't really mind for myself because I'm hard to offend. And I thought, you know, Marco Rubio changing his avatar to a taco was sort of the right way to respond. I don't need to read 19 pieces about this. Uh, but it just strikes me that they have no real rules, that they're making it up as they go along, and that what it ultimately comes down to is whether you're perceived to be on the right side or not. No, I, I think that's right. I did not realize, because I was going to make a, why don't they have put a, replace the O at the end of taco and make a tax. Um, but taco is in fact gendered, just the having the O at the end makes it male, masculine, virile. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about virile. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, I learned French from an early age and Latin too. And it's one of the more annoying parts of those languages. Yeah. That you have to remember whether each noun is masculine or feminine. Now, of course, if you grow up, then you pick it up by osmosis. Right? You grow up speaking those languages. But if you don't, you have to remember each one. Now, Bill Bryson, in one of his early books, I think it's called Mother Tongue, has an exceptional uh, passage in which he extols the virtues of English. Mm -hmm. And one of the points he makes is that over time, both deliberately uh, and via evolution, we have stripped out a lot of the extraneous garbage that still resides in most languages. So, for example... By getting rid of a symbolic system in favor of the alphabet, uh, English and and other uh, alphabetic languages are superior to, say, Chinese, especially in a computing age, because it's it's difficult to to translate uh, Chinese symbols, which persist in their meaning over time in a way language often doesn't. Uh, When it's alphabetized... uh, it's difficult to put them in a computer. But he also says, if you look at English, we got rid of masculine and feminine nouns, which are kind of annoying and pointless. We got rid of most diacritic marks, which are kind of annoying and pointless. Um, And we ended up with this stripped down language. So I'm not even opposed to the idea per se that, that, you know, I'm not not defensive of the idea that, that Spanish um, has all of these A's and O's and confusing rules. But, um, it seems to me absolutely hilarious to say that it's sort of anti-imperialist to tell people that their language needs changing. <laughs> um, uh, just, I, 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 at first, I thought you were going to make the opposite point of one that you did about how you could see in another context this would just be obviously racist. And I think you're right. There's plenty of contexts where you could say it would be obviously racist. There are also plenty of contexts where it would be obviously harmless um, in the sense of, or inoffensive, like, if you're in Nebraska, they've got, uh, what is it called, Runza, um, which I believe is, yeah, Runzas. They're the only, it's a Czech derivation. It's really the only place you get Runzas, right? You, you, you can get these loose meat sandwiches or whatever the hell they're called, um, uh, whatever the hell they are, in other places. But in Nebraska, they call them Runzas. And so, like, if you were in Nebraska, you could say Runzas, right? Or you could, if you were in... Um, New York in a certain era, you could talk about egg creams or whatever. But 
like a lot of very different Hispanic cultures have different kinds of tacos. And a lot of Hispanic cultures don't have tacos. <laughs> and that's sort of the, and like, I don't, is San Antonio particularly famous for its breakfast tacos? And can you go to two different places and have the same breakfast taco? I don't, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I just thought it was a, well, it doesn't make sense. I think that's the problem is it doesn't actually make sense. Again, I'm not offended by it. I'm not offended by it either, I, except I, the double I, standard, I'm, but you know. Yeah, but, but, but <laughs> I, I think it doesn't make sense. I mean, it would be like saying, and you are all as diverse as the pierogies you mass produce. <laughs> I mean, what what was the aim? Right, right. It's and almost also, like she just wanted to say some things she thought were Hispanic-y. I think that's the closest thing to it. It, it very much feels like she was talking to the freshman class at, <laughs> at her community college or something like that. And I'm not, I actually like community colleges. I don't, I know I'm sounding disparaging, but I think community colleges I like are community great. colleges a lot. I don't like Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the meaningful distinction. All right, so let's move on. Um, let's get the rank punditry out of the way. Um, I got a piece in the LA Times today about um, some of this. New York Times Siena College poll has some just deadly findings for Joe Biden. Basically, right track in this country is thirteen percent. Um, about a third of Democrats don't want him to run again because they think he's too old, and another third don't want him to run again because they don't think. He's up to the job, which is like a great um, breakdown. So 64% of Democrats and 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 uh, want uh, someone else to be another candidate uh, in 2024. And as you pointed out in the corner, he still beats Donald Trump in a head-to-head matchup. What does that tell us about? Then there was another po- a mom of poll that came out this morning that said that uh, something like only 29% of Amer- of Democrats want Biden to run again and only 32% of Republicans want, oh 29% of Americans and 32% of 29% of Americans want Biden to run again and 32% of Americans want Trump to run again what does it say about the country that the front runners are both septuagenarian un- unpopular septuagenarians that everyone wants to see leave the public stage well it might tell us that they're not the front runners <laughs> for a start might i don't know what's going to happen in the republican primary I think that the New York Times and other press outlets are signaling pretty hard that they are on board with a potential guillotining of Joe Biden come 2024. So I wouldn't assume they're the front runners. I hope what it means is that people have tired of those two. At this point, it's a cliche, but it really is extraordinary that in a country of 330 million people, we're constantly returning to a small handful of candidates, most of whom are old. Joe Biden is the president of the United States, and he says he is going to run again when he's 78. No, 82 he'd be. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump was the president of the United States. He lost, and he, by all accounts, says he's going to run again when he's 76, 77. And the most credible, but what about this person stories that we read are the return of Hillary Clinton. I hope what we're seeing is voters say no, enough, enough. But I don't know, Jonah, because I struggle with this, as I've said probably to you and, and certainly to others. I find it quite hard to anticipate who primary voters and general election voters will favor. 
I always have. I, I lack that empathy, I suppose. I don't understand how primary voters think. And I often assume that a given person is going to make it onto the national stage and do well, and then they flop. Or I'm convinced that there's no way that a given person could make it onto the national stage and thrive, and then they do. It certainly looks to me as if the country might be gearing up for a change election. I don't think 2020 was a change election. I think 2020 was a we don't want Donald Trump election. And they're not the same thing. The last true change election was probably 1992, where a new generation said, that's it, we're done with the Cold War, and we're done with all the figures, and thank you to the Republicans, but that, that work has been achieved, and they looked elsewhere. And I wonder if that's where we're, we're headed. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's right. I mean, the, I mean it, it's not so much trying to figure out who the people will like in the primaries. It's, it's like, will they like them at the right time? I mean, we've seen a bunch of primary seasons where everyone has their little boomlet and then they fade. And it's like, it's not, a, it's, it's sort of like figuring out both the X and Y axis. Will the primary voters like them and will they like them right around election time? Um, which is also kind of hard. I mean, I, you just think about the boomlets there was for Fred Thompson, for Scott Walker, for Ben Carson. I mean, you can go back all these guys, Newt Gingrich was a front runner in his day. I think you're directionally right. I do worry about the, I, I think there's a much better chance that Joe Biden isn't the nominee for the Democrats in 2024, then there is a chance that Trump isn't, which doesn't mean I think Trump is a lock to get it. But if Trump goes for it, it things are shaping up to be where there is a real, there's still that collective action problem of belling the cat and all you need is a plurality. You know, I saw numbers today, you know, Josh Krauschauer was describing it as a majority of Republicans want somebody else as the nominee, but it's like 48% wanted him to be the nominee, which is more than enough to run the first three or four states in the primaries, and then he's the nominee. I, again, I'm not saying it's, I just find, I'm not saying it's, it's a lock or anything like that, or even likely. I'm just saying that I think it's, it's much easier already to see how Joe Biden quietly, you know, steps aside or maybe appoints himself to the Supreme Court. <laughs> but, uh, if Trump wants, I think it's a binary thing with Trump. It's like a 50-50 call. If he decides to go for it, there's a very good chance he gets the nomination. One thing I think might be a little bit different this time around is that for better or for worse, the Republican Party has adjusted to the signal that Trump sent. There was a really interesting Sean Trendy thread on Twitter the other day explaining how fed up with the Republican Party as it existed, many Republicans were. And while there may still be a collective action problem, that directional issue is unlikely to obtain in the same way in 2024. The, at the moment, most likely second option will be Ron DeSantis. And... I think a lot of pundits are accustomed to conceiving of Donald Trump 
as a man who has unchecked power to ridicule and destroy anyone who threatens him. And I think there is an assumption that Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott or Tim Scott or Christy Nome will show up at a debate and then Trump will play the same game that he did in 2016 and it will work because he's Trump. And I'm not sure about that. I think that the reason that it worked in 2016 was that what Trump was saying in his inimitable way resonated. I think when he criticized Marco Rubio on immigration, a lot of Republican primary voters said, I agree. I think when he criticized Jeb Bush for being the third term of his brother, a lot of Republican primary voters agreed. I'm not sure that will work in the same way against a DeSantis, unless what he's saying about DeSantis is obviously true. So if, for example, DeSantis cannot make the jump to the national stage, which is entirely possible, if he ends up being Scott Walker version two, if he ends up lacking the the gravitas, the command, if he just looks parochial, and Trump says, well, you're little Ron, maybe that works. But if he doesn't, if he looks credible and convincing and appealing to Republican primary voters, I think Trump will have a much harder time playing the game he did in 2016. And that, as well as the fact that Trump lost in 2020, and that many in the party seem to be tiring of him, and that he's still polling badly against Joe Biden, who seems to be a political corpse, that gives me pause before even setting Trump up as the favorite, let alone the prohibitive favorite. It's possible. It's definitely possible. I mean, I, I think it's maybe even probable. I mean, and I think we have this debate among my colleagues and I about whether or not the best scenario is a few serious candidates getting in and declaring that they're going to run regardless of whether Trump runs or whether it's a, a lot getting in and sending a more powerful signal. Um, I think there's a happy medium somewhere around six candidates, right? Like a normal traditional primary thing. And because the one thing we know that Trump, he loves to be the center of attention. He loves to cause a spectacle. He loves to own the libs. He loves to, you know, uh, humiliate people, but he hates to lose. And if you can send the signal that it's not going to be a coronation, that, uh, there's a real chance of a, of a consecutive humiliation that may just keep him out, which is why I would love for Ron DeSantis to declare any day now, you know, same thing with, uh, with Tom Cotton or whoever, and actually have congressmen and senators start endorsing other people just so that the climate looks unpropitious to Trump and makes it look like work because Trump's lazy. And, um, and I think that would be the best, you know, case scenario. You said something on the editor's podcast, which I, I listened to, um, fairly religiously. I disagreed with you on the, I mean, I think we're both on the same page that uh, prosecuting Trump is a problematic thing if they can prove that he did the things that he's alleged to have done and, 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 and connect all of the dots. Um, that's not where I necessarily disagree. We both agree that, that 
Trump should have been impeached and removed. He was unfit for office. You say it all the time. Um, but I think when you were talking with Zan at one point, and if I mischaracterized you, just let me know, um, or misheard you, uh, you said there was no evidence that he is um, guilty of inciting or in fomenting um, the mob. And I just don't think that's, I think there may be insufficient evidence, but I don't think no evidence is a defensible terrain. So rather than me characterizing you or straw manifying you, what is your actual position? And then I'll argue with you about that. Oh, my position is that what Trump did on January 6th does not meet the standard that is laid out in Brandenburg v. Ohio, which would be necessary to prosecute him for incitement. Yeah, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I went and looked at the Brandenburg thing, and the fact that he knew that, you know, there are, all, there are these different pieces of the test, and you probably haven't memorized I don't, but like, one, it has to be like foreseeable and imminent. And he was, if the facts as we have them, or the, if the allegations as we have them are in, in fact true, that he knew there was a large number of people in the crowd that were armed, that he, now I know you have a different standard for why people might be armed than I do in that context, but um, if the conversations that he had with, um, Roger Stone and all those kinds of people are what I think reasonable people can infer they are. If Rudy Giuliani and these guys were actually saying to people that they were in fact trying to do some sort of march on Rome where the president will look very powerful as he basically intimidates Congress, um, you put those things together and you know that the Proud Boys and you know that the Oath Keepers are there you know that the Secret Service doesn't want to let these people through the magnetometers, and you say, no, get rid of the mags. They can march on the Capitol from there because since they're not going to hurt me. In that context, having invited them to the Capitol in the first place, um, I think that gets a lot closer to satisfying Brandenburg than merely saying, and on Hyde's Corner or wherever, you know, let's overthrow the government. Because this was a specific time, place, and manner thing where he was in a context, knew these people were armed and had and refused to give up their weapons, right? So, like, they wanted to hold on to their weapons. That takes away the claim that they were just there to protest. Um, and it seems to me, like, again, I'm very troubled by the idea. I, I think there's a real problem with actually prosecuting him for this. But I don't think that that means that he's not necessarily guilty of a bunch of different crimes, including the incitement part. Well, a couple of things. First, unless I'm mistaken, the plaintiffs in Brandenburg v. Ohio were armed as well. Second, while I think you make a fair case about what Trump might have been thinking, I don't think there is much of a mens rea element to Brandenburg. I think the question is what a given utterance is likely to yield. Mm -hmm. So the statute in question, the Ohio statute that was struck down in effect by the Brandenburg decision, made it illegal for anyone to advocate in public crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform. It's precisely the sort of law you would need to prosecute Donald Trump. 
It also made it illegal to assemble with any society, group, or assemblage of persons formed to teach or advocate the doctrines of criminal syndicalism. That doesn't apply. And then there was a two-pronged approach that the court applied to that law. The first is, did the speech um, incite or produce imminent lawless action? Was it supposed to? Uh, and was it likely to incite or produce such action? I think it's hard to get over both of those humps. I think the likely is pretty easy. Yeah, um, but the directed is not. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I, but my point wasn't necessarily that there's not a counter defense to be made. My point was that your position was there was no evidence. And I think that is, I mean, it's one thing to say, there is insufficient evidence. Well, I need to go back and listen. And I, it's entirely possible I may have spoken, misspoken, as I just did. My position is that it doesn't reach the threshold of Brandenburg v. Ohio. I may have said there's no evidence that it reaches the threshold of Brandenburg v. Ohio. I mean, cert certainly, I believe, as you know, and as you just related, that he did something profoundly morally wrong, and he right. should have been impeached for it. So my argument is by no means that what he said was misinterpreted or uh, blown out of proportion or that it has no relationship whatsoever to the uh, legal crimes we're discussing. I think, though, that there is a profound difference between the legislature saying this was disqualifying behavior per se and more specifically it was an attack on article one and on our prerogatives and we are therefore going to ensure that you can never again be the head of the executive branch and a prosecutor bringing a federal incitement case that is consistent with current First Amendment jurisprudence. And that was the distinction that I was trying to draw. That's fair enough. I mean, I, I think I mean, it's, it's so easy to make the impeachment case, right? Because... He should have been impeached. Re regardless, well, and, and if we're going to be sticklers, he was impeached. He just wasn't well, convicted, he should have been right? convicted. <laughs> but, um, uh, sorry, I had Nordlinger on here a couple of weeks ago, and we just couldn't go more than five feet without correcting each other's usage um and it's stuck but um no the uh my point is like that they had all sorts of warnings that there were people there coming looking for violence right talking about it's civil war the steve bannon it's going to be what all that kind of stuff they had all sorts of intel as as has been reported that people were going there with regard put trump's mens rea aside for two seconds in the in the in the weird little jar that it lives in um and put and just n take what we know about the mens rea of the actual crowd not the whole crowd but the people that there were warnings about and saying we, got, we have to show strength and go march on the capitol and all this kind of stuff whether it passes vandenberg or not it certainly passes the common sense test of being foreseeably idiotic and dangerous no and um um and it seems to me like my problem with the with the with the January sixth committee, I mean I have a bunch of problems, but is that I don't trust them not to get over their skis and reach for things that they can't reach. And if they could just lay out the factual record successfully, that would be enough. And 
going for criminal prosecutions or pretending that criminal referrals are real things, which they're not, actually will make an actual criminal prosecution worse if it happens because it'll seem like it is a politicized thing rather than, you know, driven on the evidence. And the DOJ doesn't need a criminal referral to look at whether crimes are committed, and they're already doing it. So it's kind of one of these myths that the media is sort of caught up with. Yes. And I should add, for any of your listeners who don't know me or where I tend to come down on these questions, that I'm a self-described squish on criminal justice, and I instinctively side with defense lawyers. If given the facts of a case, we'll usually conclude that there is no case for prosecution. So... Now, I'm sure if you had someone on who was more uh, prosecutor-minded, uh, they, they would come to a different conclusion. But I, I struggle to see, given the case law here and the details of the Brandenburg case itself, how you could successfully prosecute what Trump said. And I think the risk associated with trying and failing is enormous. I agree with that. And again, if I were a prosecutor, I probably wouldn't prosecute for other reasons, not necessarily because of his guilt or lack thereof. But I wouldn't have. I wouldn't go with incitement. I would go with obstructing a government function, dereliction of. You know, there there are there are lesser criminal things. I think he in fact did that are easier to prove um, than the incitement part of it. And um. And I, I, since we're on this, and we're going to move off in a second, but I'll let you respond. You also had a line in there which I've I've despised in the impeachment context for a quarter century, which is something along the lines of if they can do this to the president, they can do it to anybody. And um, I think that that is a real inversion of the issues involved, insofar as um, if they can do it to the president, it proves that nobody is above the law. Um, and I really dislike, I'm not saying I that, think you've misunderstood what I meant there. What okay. I was saying was that because I think that they do not have the grounds to prosecute him, if they subsequently prosecute him on nothing legally, then we should all be worried about it. In other words, we all have an interest in ensuring that there is substance underneath prosecutions. Because if we start seeing substance-less prosecutions against people who have megaphones and means, there's no chance for the rest of us. I, I, I didn't mean that I'm opposed to prosecuting powerful people or that I'm against impeachment. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I was in some ways channeling something that has bothered me and I've written a lot about during the Trump years, which is this... Uh, growing illiberalism unfortunately a lot of it comes from the left which used to be good on criminal defense matters uh, aimed at trump on the assumption that he's different or that whatever norms one breaks in going after him will be limited in their scope to him mm -hmm. you, know, you hear otherwise sensible and well-respected people for example on cable news shows saying Wow, did you see that this Trump associate uh, went in and, and pled the fifth? That's a sign of guilt, you know. Right. Well, it's not. And we shouldn't accept that as uh, conceit, and we shouldn't throw that at Trump or his associates because they're Trump and his associates, and then become uh, alarmed if the 
poor kid who comes from a broken home uh, suffers because as a society, we've got used to saying, you know, pleading the fifth is a sign of guilt. So, you know, all I was saying there was that because I don't think that the Justice Department has enough evidence, because I don't think that the Brandenburg standard can be met, if the Justice Department were to bring a prosecution that was insufficiently backed up against Trump because he's Trump, then the rest of us are screwed. That was, that was where I was going. Yeah, right. not, I, not the, I, again, I, I am not sure the transitive properties are as strong as 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 you think they are. There, um, I know you live. Even though you're an atheist, you you have a very uh, Catholic view of some of these kinds of things. Insofar as you think all actions ripple out into the universe um, in 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 various ways, and I personally think that while I agree with you about the violation of norms thing. This has been, I've been written a bunch about this too, is that when Trump and Trump and Trump world violates norms, it gives people on the other side permission structure to violate norms in response. And then you just have a, you know, this sort of dialectic of norm violation all the way down. Um, you know, we saw this when they were early days of the Trump presidency, where they were leaking, uh, private conversations Trump had with, with the president of Russia. um, uh, which was a huge norm violation, but they thought it was worthwhile because, you know, it's Trump. And I have a, I have a lawyer friend who actually calls a lot of this stuff Trump law, which is that it's it's you, that the normal rules don't apply when dealing with Trump. So I agree with you on that. I think, though, that as a larger picture, that when you have a president of the United States who uh, maybe unprovably in a court of law, but pretty obviously tried to commit a, uh, a an auto coup, um, a self coup. Um, it's going to invite a lot of antibody responses from the system that probably will not threaten the average person in a normal course of life because it is so sui generis that the president of the United States who the first president of the United States to violate the tradition of the peaceful transfer of power invited a mess of trouble and a mess of overreactions upon himself. But don't you think that the endless repetition of falsehoods weakens the system at all levels? Don't you think that the endless repetition of illiberal ideas weakens the system at all levels and habituates people of all types and all political persuasions in ways that are regrettable. Absolutely. I mean, I mean there was this uh, yeah. famous piece by Jamil Hill in The Atlantic in which she expresses surprise and irritation at having asked a group of African-American men what they thought about Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm and being told that, by and large, they empathized with him because they thought the likelihood of what he was going through happening to them in an admittedly slightly different context was high. And you know, I think you could translate what I was saying about Trump if they go after him without the requisite evidence what chance to the rest of us has to that. If you normalize the illiberal ideas that were almost ubiquitous in the press during the Kavanaugh hearing, mm-hmm. 
in our society, the people who are going to hurt the most do not look like Brett Kavanaugh. They don't occupy the same jobs or earn the same paychecks or join the same clubs as Brett Kavanaugh. We've never heard of them. They're people who don't have friends in high places, who don't have media outlets primed to defend them. I was really worried about that, not because people kept asking. Brett Kavanaugh was the only choice that could possibly have been made for the Supreme Court seat that was being vacated. Far from it. But firstly, because you shouldn't see questions of innocence and guilt like that. We're not widgets, we're people. And once you level an accusation at someone, then it attaches to them, not society. So it bothered me that people said, well, don't worry, we'll just destroy his life and you can pick someone else. But because if that is what MSNBC, to pick an example, really thinks our standards should be, then I think we are going to slide down into Gomorrah. If the standard really is that if someone accuses you of something without evidence, we should assume it to be true, or that if you are in a position of trust and you are accused, that the very fact of the accusation should lead you to withdraw, or that there can be no statute of limitations, either legal or cultural, on accusations of misconduct. If, if those are the, the rules that we promulgate when the target is Brett Kavanaugh, I think that that, over time, corrupts society to the point at which all of us are less safe and our system is less liberal, and that an awful lot of people whose names we will never learn will suffer from it. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. One, I am totally with you. I was a big supporter of... uh, I was a big opponent of the enemies of of Brett Kavanaugh, right? Um, That was the... uh, I thought what happened to him was very witch-hunty and um, and indefensible, and I never... And I think... uh, And I I agree with you in broad brushstrokes that... um, a climate that indulges that kind of thing is um, poisonous in all sorts of ways. Again, I'm a little more skeptical that it redounds down to the average person um, in the street, in part because uh, we tend to uh, treat media figures, broadly understood, public figures, it's basically shadows on Plato's cave and we have different standards for them. We treat them as if they're characters in reality shows. I think it's grossly unfair to some of them, which brings me to my bigger objection, which is that I think there is a real sort of a bait and switch going on when you segue from Donald Trump to Brett Kavanaugh, because I think I'm perfectly willing to stipulate that the charges against Brett Kavanaugh were false, right? I mean, either, sufficiently false, either obviously false or the accusations were obviously unprovable and based upon poor standards of evidence and innuendo, and it was an effort at character assassination. Part of my problem is, as I agree with you, there's a lot of this crap that goes on on the left, and it bothers me a lot, and I spend a lot of time writing and talking about it. But, you know, you mentioned before that the, uh, you know, this, oh, we know when someone invokes the fifth, that means they're guilty. The most prominent person in the last 10 years to make that argument was Donald Trump. Who used no to question say it, about it. Yeah, he used to say it at rallies, right? Donald Trump is also the guy who accused Ben Carson, you know, insinuated that Ben Carson 
was a murderer that, and maybe a pedophile or something that, uh, that Ted Cruz's dad, you know, was part of the Kennedy assassination. Um, a more passionate sort of, uh, smear artist and McCarthyite in American politics. We have not seen in a really long time. And I agree with you. There is an asymmetry between the depredations of one thuggish demagogue and the sort of systemic way a lot of elite institutions align with illiberalism. But um, I have a harder time than you, I think, focusing all my ire at the illiberal threat that comes from those left-wing in institutions when, you know, I was just up visiting with my mom and I was subjected to a lot of weekend programming of Fox. There's just a lot, there, there's a lot of this crap that is endemic to America. There is like the cancel culture thing is an American problem that manifests itself in different ways on the left and the right. And we can make important distinctions between the kinds of institutions that the left and the right control and the grievances and also who's who people want to cancel. These are all worthy things of debate and argue about. But I see America's trouble with illiberalism as being uh, much more sort of in the broadest sense of the term bipartisan and and despairing. I, I should be clear here, Jonah, I wasn't suggesting otherwise. I just mentioned those examples because we were talking about Donald Trump being prosecuted or not prosecuted. Okay. And so I was bringing up those who have political, irrespective of whether it's true, political motivations to bring a prosecution that may fail. We, we could talk all day about right-wing illiberalism, uh, and I, I'm sure we'll agree a great deal. Um, my broader point is that I think that, and we can shift to this now, I think that when Donald Trump talks about loosening libel laws, I think that when Donald Trump talks about people who take the fifth being guilty, I think that when Donald Trump says, take the guns first, we'll work it out later. I think that that trickles down. I think it's trickle down a liberalism to coin a phrase, <laughs> and I don't. Which is particularly... usually not a direction that trickle. Well, I guess I guess liberalism <laughs> historically does trickle down, <laughs> and I don't particularly care whether it comes from someone on the right or someone from the left. I think that over time it becomes inculcated in the national character, and the topic we were discussing was whether or not Trump should be prosecuted. And what I said on the editor's podcast, which is that if he ends up being prosecuted for something for which there is insufficient evidence, that hurts everyone else because that will be a breach of what should be our liberal norms. It will be the equivalent of John Adams saying in the case of the Boston Massacre, no. I won't defend you. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think, though, that there's a, there's a bit of a hick, hitch in, even in that, insofar as I don't think that, and again, I, it, it is a weird cul-de-sac we've gotten ourselves into because I, am, I think there is evidence that he's guilty. I think that they could probably prove that he's guilty of some things. I still don't think he should be prosecuted. In fact, I think the ideal situation is that Biden works out a deal with Trump where he pardons him in 
and, and it's part of the deal of accepting a blanket pardon and they could work out things with the Georgia prosecutors and all of that, um, is that he agree as a condition of the blanket pardon uh, not to run for office again, which is apparently the kind of thing you can do with a pardon. I don't know that that's entirely possible, but I think that would be the best thing for the healing of the country. And I think it would be the best thing to put both of those guys behind him because the Democrats would never forgive Biden for doing it. <laughs> but um, my point is, when you keep saying it would be illiberal to prosecute him without sufficient evidence, you have to have the... You're, you, yes, you and I disagree on the merits of the case, but I'm explaining why I said what I said. Right, no, no, I, I, get, I, I, get, I get what you said, and that's all fair. But my point is, is the, point, the only point I was going to make is that it's assuming the mens rea on the part of the prosecutors that they don't think there's sufficient evidence and they will go ahead and do it anyway. My assumption is, is that they will actually, and you certainly Merrick Garland's body language on this, I think sort of supports this to one extent or another is that they won't, wouldn't prosecute without believing it. And if there's still insufficient evidence, then he'll be, um, uh, acquitted which creates its own political problems. But th I don't know that that would undermine the liberalism of our system that the Department of Justice prosecuted the most, you know, the former president of the United States who tried to commit a coup. And even though it's pretty obvious that he did it, he got off. Um, that seems to me supportive of liberalism rather than undermining liberalism. I see some alarming signs and i agree because you and i have different conceptions of the strength of the case then in a sense we are also arguing the merits of this not just the resultant approach but for example this case in new york to me is a witch hunt the uh, southern district of new york uh, spent years not looking into a potential crime that Donald Trump had committed, but into Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They went after him because he's Donald Trump. And what did they find in the end? They found that he had not written off or written off a Kurt a employee car or something. Yeah. You know, you could do that to me. You could do that quite easily. And I think that we should stand up straight and tall for the idea that we investigate crimes, not people. And I am worried, having seen quite a lot of investigations into Trump that started with who he is, not what he was supposed to have done, that the political pressure here will get out over the skis on which the evidence resides and uh, lead to a, an unfortunate precedent. Since you mentioned guns, um, been meaning to talk to you about all this for a while now. Um, I can't remember how many mass shootings we've had since the last time you were on, which is a really gross and dark thing to say. Your position, uh, let me put it this way. What do you think, I know your answer, but what do you think we can do about mass shootings? Not much. Which is the scariest position to be in. I think that this is going to sound as if I'm trying to change the subject. So let me make abundantly clear that I'm not. I don't think we should ignore mass shootings. I don't think we should play with statistics so that it looks as if America is normal in the world when it comes to mass shootings. 
And I don't think that we should pretend that the number of mass shootings that we suffer through in America has nothing to do with the number of guns that are in circulation. I do think the relationship between increases in the number of those guns and the laws that govern those guns and the considerable base number of guns is more complicated than gun control activists acknowledge. For example, we saw a 30-year period between 1990 and 2020 in which the number of privately owned guns trebled and almost every gun law in the United States was loosened and assaults and murders committed with firearms were cut in half for every racial group in every area. But the extraordinary base number of guns in American society is obviously directly related to the high number of suicides committed with guns, to the high number of murders committed with guns, and to mass shootings. So I've got that out of the way. I'm not trying to deflect here. But I think we spend too much time thinking about how we can stop the most difficult problem to stop and not enough time thinking about how we can stop the easier and much more numerous problems that we have. The difference in coverage, in tone, in the demands that resulted, and in uh, frequency of story between what happened on July 4th in Highland Park and what happened in Chicago proper over the same period, it's grotesque. Now, we know why. It's partly because the people who write the news, including me, can imagine themselves being in Highland Park in that scenario, but they can't imagine themselves being in the dangerous parts of Chicago. And it's partly because we expect bad things to happen in the dangerous parts of Chicago, and we don't expect it to happen in Highland Park. But what we have learned over the last 30 years, in my estimation, is that with real work and thought and the expenditure of resources, we can get that attrition in Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and New York and other places down. We can do something about that. We can't stop it all, but we can help. We also know that, and again, it's very difficult. Lea Labresco has written really well about this, just how involved this is. But we also know that there are some things that we can do to lower the suicide rate. The vast majority of the people who die as a result of gunfire in the United States die having shot themselves. We don't know how to fix mass shootings. I know that politicians like to say that we know, and that goes for both sides. The gun control side says we need to ban this sort of gun or this sort of magazine size or stop this sort of person from getting the gun or institute a background check or a registry or an ID card. And the... Pro-Second Amendment side can be flippant about this and say we need to stop people playing video games or we need more concealed carriers or we need two-parent homes or what you want. But we, we don't know how to stop this. At least we don't know how to stop it without a prohibition-level alteration to the American social compact. 
which would carry with it its own problems, probably worse than the ones we were trying to solve. And it's beginning to really bother me that CNN, for example, but Fox did it too, spent a whole week on this guy in Highland Park. I checked it every single day, which is in and of itself a problem because every single academic study I have ever read, published over 30 years, has made it clear that mass shootings are a copycat phenomenon. Right back to the beginning. The mass shooting in Port Arthur, Australia in 1996 was a direct response to a mass shooting in Scotland, in Dunblane. The guy who carried that out, he was going to kill himself. That was his plan. And he saw the news and he saw the obsessive coverage and he thought, that's what I will do instead. The line is clear as day. But that aside, one week's worth of coverage, who the shooter was, who his father was, what gun he used, how long he'd planned it, what his videos said, what he'd said on this social media site, and on and on and on. And in the background, the suicides mount and crimes going up and gang shootings are taking lives, including lives that don't belong to the gang members themselves. And I don't hear anything like the same level of urgency. And that's not an abstract point. Specifically, where is the outcry against the near total lack of willingness to enforce straw purchasing laws? Where is the outcry against the almost total lack of willingness to enforce illegal possession laws? These are huge sources of crime. (laughs) The, The number of Americans who were prosecuted for lying on form 4473, which is the federal form you fill out when you buy a gun in a gun store, last year was about 280. 20 million guns were sold last year. 280. We just don't do it. We're not interested. So we see Beto O'Rourke happy to interrupt a press conference and say, do more, do more, do something. You're to blame. You have blood on your hands. Uh, We see one of the Parkland fathers interrupted Joe Biden's speech yesterday. Biden was touting this bipartisan bill they signed two weeks ago. Do more, do more, do more. Okay, I understand. He has a different view on this than I do. And a different life experience. And I feel enormous uh, sympathy for him. But we never see anyone interrupting a press conference to say... Why is it that you aren't enforcing any of the laws that were explicitly passed to diminish the daily churn of gun violence? And I think this is a huge problem. I agree. Look, I, I, I agree with you in entirely about the, uh, what's the right phrase? Traditional urban crime problem, right? I mean, um, uh, I hate, talking about it euphemistically but you know i think you make a perfectly valid point i'm i agree with you entirely on it um i think and i I don't it's not like we disagree i think you know you you check the boxes about why this is why the mass shooting thing is different we're fascinated by serial killers right we're fascinated by shark attacks we are fascinated by lightning strikes um there is 
something about the nature of mass killers that pings a different center of our brains because in part, as you say, because we can imagine it happening to us um, in part because for want of a better term, it satisfies the itch to identify evil in a way that um, a shootout between two gangs doesn't. I agree with you that it, the coverage is a problem, but I also, I am not offended by the mismatch in coverage in a certain way, because as it's just sort of an old fashioned journalistic sense, it intuitively makes sense to me that sensational things are going to be sensationalized and, um, get, uh, get attention. Now, there are lots of things that we as civilized people understand would get a lot of attention that we stop paying attention to. Like we got rid of blood sports, you know, and bear baiting, even though we know the, the crowd would love it, you know, if we had more of it. And so I'm totally open as an intellectual and policy matter to your point, which is that maybe we should, you know, we, we should start a conversation about how the media doesn't cover this stuff as much. I do think we've made real progress in not naming these people. And, um, it's and not I think just that, the media, just to be clear, it's also politicians. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Chris and Murphy. And you said, how many have there been? And there've been far too many, but Chris Murphy, every time there is a mass shooting goes to the Senate floor and gives an impassioned speech. And that's fine. He's a Senator from Connecticut. One of the worst mass shootings in American history took place in Connecticut. This is an important issue to him. I don't doubt his sincerity on that. But he doesn't make a speech on the Senate floor when he learns that 60 people were killed over Labor Day weekend in yeah. Philadelphia. And I think that is a much bigger problem than the media coverage. And I think it drives a lot of the media coverage. No, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. I mean, my point is that there are some cases... You know, for example, remember this entire country was basically done with the war on terror stuff and like let let ISIS run wild and then they killed two journalists. And America was like, oh, no, you didn't. And we completely, you know, all the polls changed. Uh, there are some things that ping our imaginations, our brains, our moral sentiments in different ways. And I think that's just something that uh has to be taken into account in the debate. And I, it's funny, I was giving you a hard time for thinking that various things resonate out into the universe. It seems to me that if we don't figure out a way to seem like we're making headway against mass shootings, that will lead to more illiberalism, as you define it, yeah. um, than anything else, right? So it, even if it's the... I mean, I hate to sound Straussian or Machiavellian or whatever about this, but even if it's the illusion of progress would help. Um, and that's why I, like, I agree with you. There's nothing, there are no silver bullets here for want of a better term, right? There's no cure all, but, um, I'm much more open to a lot of things at the margins, right? It's like we, there's no cure to aging, but you do a lot of little things. Well, other people do. I don't, I'm a giant unmade bed of a man, but, um, uh, we do things, you know, people who care about aging do little things at the margin. They exercise, they eat this, they take these pills, blah, 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 blah. They stop smoking, they stop drinking, whatever. It seems to me that there are probably a dozen things at the margins that probably half of them bother you on the sort of slippery slope illiberalism point. Um, 
but don't actually violate the principle. You just make the hairs on the back of your neck go off. That, at the minimum, would give the illusion that we're actually trying to, you know, that would satisfy the just do something part. Like, why you can't have an algorithm that goes around scooping up, um, looking at people. If you if you if you if you post about Columbine a lot, maybe a little bell should go off on somebody's widget that they then actually look at the post to make sure that it's not some academic paper or whatever, but it's, you know, the, this is something that's worth looking into. I can think of a lot of those kinds of scenarios. I know, you know, you've, you're generally okay with the idea of red flag laws if they're properly written at the state level, you don't love them and all that, but, you know, Illinois did nothing to promote or train people about their existing red flag laws. You know, Florida used them thousands of times. Illinois used them, you know, a handful of times because nobody knows how to use them. Nobody's taught how to use them. There are things you could do on that level that I don't like ads saying, telling people to be on the lookout for gun owners and whether they seem troubled. But at the same time, we're, I don't think we have that many more mass shootings in us before a lot more draconian things start to seem reasonable. Well, uh, I agree with that. I still have no idea how to fix this. I would say that... But stop saying that, fix, right? I mean, what about improve? Improve at the margins. Uh, make progress. Ameliorate partially. You know, what, okay, fair enough. Uh, well, the first thing we can do is something I already mentioned, which is to enforce the laws that we have. And that's not a dodge to no, get I, away I agree from with talking about yeah. new laws. I did not like, for many reasons, I'm happy to go into them, the law that the Senate just passed two weeks ago, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. But Chris Murphy and others who have been seeking gun control for many years called it the most important gun control law in 30 years. What did it do? It changed the background check system for 18 to 20-year-olds. It disqualified... Americans who wish to buy but not possess for some reason guns if they have a juvenile record. It altered the definition of domestic violence to include people who aren't married but are in a serious dating relationship. And it incentivized with a few billion dollars mental health and red flag laws at the state level. But that's not me writing, endorsing or passing this bill. This is every Senate Democrat and 14 Republicans. And we just don't enforce any of the provisions that it touched. Illinois had a red flag law. But this guy somehow didn't show up in any system, despite having tried to kill himself, despite having threatened to kill everyone in his family, such that the police were dispatched to his house to take away 16 knives, a sword, and a dagger, mm -hmm. but do nothing else. We don't enforce straw purchasing, as I've said. That was also in the bill. The FBI almost never follows up on gun purchases that are flagged. And if people are known or seriously suspected to have lied during the process, the Department of Justice does nothing. At what point does this fixing around the edges, improving, making better, diminishing slightly process 
move away from demanding new rules and move towards the ones that we already have. Because I'm not against all of the laws that are on the books. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it should be legal for a felon to buy a gun. I don't think that it should be legal for a 14-year-old to buy a gun. I don't think that it should be legal for a crack addict to buy a gun. It's really rare. In fact, the only one I can think of, still the strangest of all, was the Las Vegas shooting. It's really rare for an event like that to happen and then all the details to come out and everyone says, beats me. There's always something. And, you know, unless we're going to go down a far more draconian route, and maybe you're right that this will happen anyway, I am really reluctant to define being seen to do something as passing new measures rather than getting serious about the ones that we have already put on the statute books. But, you know, I I think it's a totally fair point. I mean, but I mean, how much does it say we had 100 percent enforcement of existing laws? How many mass shootings would that have prevented? Yeah, that's why I keep saying I don't know how to stop this. And then you said, well, don't say fix or stop, say around the edges. And so I'm saying, no, I think fair. maybe that's we fair. could have stopped a few around the edges. Yeah. No, I mean, look, you, you are right when you describe me as a, a civil libertarian who is opposed to a great deal of the measures that would presumably be necessary in order to uh, limit this. And, and it's not just guns. Right? I mean, if you, if you look at gun control in other countries, it touches on all sorts of other rights that Americans have in greater scope than than anywhere else you know for example in america you cannot be denied the right to buy a gun because you have said hitler was great right now i don't like people who say hitler was great i think they're terrible but viewpoint discrimination is applied to the second amendment you're not allowed to do it Mm mm-hmm in Britain, if you own a gun, the federal, the, the national government can come in at any point and inspect the gun and the safe that it is mandated by law to live inside without a warrant. That's not going to fly in the United States yeah, because yeah. we have the Fourth Amendment and we have due process and so on and so forth. Um, so you you are right, but where I think uh, we're probably closer than you might think is that. I think in a lot of the recent cases, there was probable cause to bring the eventual shooter in. Mm -hmm. And if you are dispatching police officers to someone's house to take away 18 weapons because he's threatened to kill his whole family, how can you conclude you don't have probable cause to arrest the guy? I looked up the law in Illinois. They have... uh, intimidation laws, domestic violence laws, and assault laws that all perfectly cover what he said. Why wasn't he arrested? In Uvalde, the shooter had a video of him with a bag of dead cats. He had told people at the Wendy's where he worked that he wanted to shoot up a school. Maybe you would struggle to prosecute someone for that, but you can absolutely arrest someone for a threat of that nature. And we don't do it. 
So I, I think there are, you know, if we're talking about around the edges, I think there is a lot more that we could be doing but don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think that that the the gun part of it is at the end of the process. And if you were actually going to make progress at the margins, there are a lot, the second amendment would probably be the last thing that would be affected. It would be free speech stuff. It would be free, you know, uh, you know, uh, freedom of association stuff, uh, right to privacy stuff, because again, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's a lot of people think it's self invalidating to use NRA talking points, but like people are the ones who kill people. And, and so you have to go at the people and the, and that means, having a better mental health system, having earlier interventions, having um, a much greater deal of comfort of limiting people's agency if they are talking like this. And I personally am less offended by some of these things as long as it's done at a local level and done you know, smartly and it doesn't get, you know, there are lots of ways it could go wrong, but there are lots of ways our already existing system can go wrong. I mean, just curious, before we get off guns, I know we're coming up past the hour, but um, what was your position on stop and frisk? I don't think I remember. I thought it was unconstitutional, but worked really well. Yeah, I might use that opportunity, Jenna, to repeat something you've presumably heard me say in other contexts, but maybe your listeners have not. This is going forward going to be the most interesting question in all of American gun politics. Is what happens when you reach an equilibrium at which the conservative side of the country, to dumb it down a little, opposes gun control on the front end and the progressive side of the country to dumb it down a little opposes gun control on the back end mm -hmm. because that is where we are headed over the last 30 years the consolidation of the parties has broadly made a, an expansive conception of gun rights a conservative or republican coded issue there are some exceptions and there are a lot of democrats who are pro-gun it's part of the Republican or conservative or red state or flyover country identity now to be pro-gun. Shall not infringe. And as such, even people who aren't into guns, don't own guns, aren't particularly interested in the history of guns, are skeptical of gun control when it is proposed. Do you want to ban this type of gun? No. Do you want to change the eligibility requirements for a concealed carry permit? No. And so on and so forth. And over the same period, although more recently, I think, the last 10 years especially, progressives have become squishy about enforcing gun laws. And stop and frisk was a perfect example of it. And in this case, I suppose I'm the progressive. Although I thought it worked efficiently, I thought it was unconstitutional. Stop and frisk was a gun control measure, and progressives killed it. In New York, which has been relatively successful at bringing crime down, you now have a class of DAs that doesn't want to enforce nonviolent gun crimes. We have an intellectual movement in the United States that believes that we have too many people incarcerated and that the racial makeup of those who are incarcerated is not only regrettable, but deliberate, and seeks at any stage to alter that makeup. And one of the 
areas that they have hit upon as a means by which to do that is the enforcement or rather non-enforcement of firearms crimes. Much of the anger toward the 1994 crime bill from the left, the right hated the so-called assault weapons ban, from the left was at its mandatory minimum provisions, most of which related to firearms. In that if you were involved in a drug deal or you were caught in possession of, say, crack or cocaine, and you had a firearm, judges were obliged in many cases to add five or ten years to your sentence. So that went. And I don't know what happens to the question of, of crime committed with firearms when, for different reasons and at different stages in the process, both major parties and both major political blocs in this country are squishy about gun control. Because mm-hmm. that's not what the country looked like 30 years ago. For a start, it was far less divided on this question. You had a lot of pro-gun control Republicans who were law and order types, and they saw guns as being part of the problem. You had a lot of Democrats from states that you know, Democrats don't win anymore, but used to win all the time, strong tradition of of gun ownership and the progressive prosecutor model that we have seen uh, was wildly out of fashion because crime was at its highest probably ever in 1990 or so but that's not the country we live in anymore so i i raised that because you ask about stop and frisk stop and frisk worked really well i i can't see how it's consistent with the constitution although i understand there are arguments to the contrary But it's a great example of progressive, not conservative, opposition to gun control in practice. Um, Yeah, no, I I agree with you. There's a, I mean, and and as I've heard you say, there's a, there's a really inconvenient, uh, disparate racial impact problem with enforcing a lot of gun crime laws, right? And it's gonna dawn on some people the weird contradictions involved in all of that at some point it will be fun to watch um james q wilson like 25 years ago wrote this thing in commentary where um he proposed sort of and for listeners that don't know james q wilson was one of the along with george kelling came up with broken windows theory widely credited at least for a long time by a lot of people to being integral to the decrease in crime in new york and, and across the country and one of the things he proposed was, instead of stopping and frisking people, giving cops, inventing some sort of technology that was essentially a long-range metal detector. And I remember, the reason why it stuck in my head is I remember George Will writing a column about how Bill Clinton was reading commentary, which is already kind of wild, um, and... Um, and he circled his passage and he sent it to some aides and said, look into this, because he thought it was a good idea. And it was a way to avoid some of the larger Fourth Amendment issues and, and all the rest. I have no, whenever I hear about stop and frisk, I always think about this as like, that's an interesting idea. I wonder whatever happened to that. Has the, do you have, since you follow this literature a tad closer than I do, as, first of all, do you have any problems with that idea? And second of all, um, uh, has there been any progress on that that you're aware of? So on the second question, I don't know if the metal detector idea has ever come to fruition. I do know that there are technologies in place that are used 
in private contexts that analyze a person's gait mm -hmm. and try to determine whether it reveals that they're carrying a gun of some sort. I've never seen this technology, but I have some friends who work in private security who've told me about it in outline. And it's why you can never first... walk into a bank without being stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are some private institutions that have metal detectors and wands at the gate, but that still want to make sure no one got in with a gun. And they have deployed this technology. So I, I may be slightly misdescribing it because it was described to me in outline, mm -hmm. but I know there are certain circumstances in which that sort of idea is is possible, whether it would be possible to give it in handheld form to a police officer. I don't know. Yeah. Do I have a problem with it? I'd have to think about that. I, I, my mind immediately went to the Supreme Court case in which Justice Scalia ruled that thermal imaging in search of marijuana growing was a Fourth Amendment violation because it represented a search of a house. Mm -hmm. And this always comes up with originalists because non-originalists who think they're being clever say, well, that didn't exist at the time of the founding. And then Scalia would say, no, well, you have to analogize. You have to look at the category. Is this equivalent to a search? Do you have a reasonable expectation when you're on the street as an individual that police officers will not be able to use X-ray vision to look underneath your clothes? I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about the Fourth Amendment and its historical interpretation. I mean, if stop and frisk is constitutionally permissible, then what you've just described absolutely would be. If stop and frisk is not, then the question would be, how different is that than stopping someone? What's the problem? Is it the stop or the frisk? Is the frisk the problem because it reveals to you what that person has outside of public view? I don't know. It's a fascinating question. Yeah, I, I would, I, my, my short answer is that one, that it is psychologically much preferable because it is not humiliating. There's no stigma attached to some cop in his car across the street um, doing it. You wouldn't even know it was done if you didn't, if they didn't think you have a gun on you, if it didn't get a positive result. And, um, and there's no chance of them finding personal papers or other incriminating, other embarrassing or incriminating or just private things, right? If it's, if the technology worked, which is a huge if, right? Um, then, then the question is, is that enough for probable cause to stop someone and say, Hey, do you have a license for that or not? And I'm not a lawyer either. You know, it's, it's an interesting question, but in places like, um, in places like New York, uh, when the crime goes crazy high, you can see that's the kind of thing that, you know, would get a lot of support pretty quickly, I think, from a lot of voters, whether or not it is it passes constitutional muster for for exacting types like ourselves. Um, all right. So we are uh, over time and I want to watch some of these hearings, um, but uh, I would be remiss. I know um, that this is an important day for you. We are, of course, talking on Julius Caesar's birthday. Um, and it's really weird. So, like, I was listening to the Adrian Goldworthy uh, biography of uh, 
of of Caesar um, over the weekend, and because I feel like I'm really bad at my classical history stuff, my Roman history stuff, and I wanted a refresher. It's great so far. I'm like eight chapters in or something, and then out of nowhere, a couple days ago, Rich Lowry just in a total non sequitur, close to does anyone smell burnt hair, just out of nowhere asks you, uh, was Brutus right for uh, killing Caesar? And you paused for a millisecond and then said, yes, he was absolutely right. So um, why don't you make the case for, uh, he never called himself king, um, but it is in a de facto regicide, tyrannicide. Um, what is your reason, you Oxonian, you, for why uh, uh, Caesar had it coming? Well, I, I made a joke when Rich asked me that, and I said, because he was in the executive branch. <laughs> that was a joke. But in the Roman context... Because it was not a lawful it? prosecution, right? So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> but in the Roman context, it wasn't entirely a joke in the sense that, although I think Julius Caesar had it coming, it's not as if his murder led to the American Constitution and the <laughs> rise of you know, representative government. He died at the hands of uh, political actors who then made the case that he deserved what had come to him. Uh, Caesar is named an enemy of the state. In one sense, what you saw there was, was internecine warfare. Mm-hmm. It's also not as if the people who killed him were saints. You know, this isn't George Washington crossing the Delaware. The Senate, where he was killed by members of the Senate, was corrupt, greedy. One of the reasons he was hated was that he was deleterious to the fortunes and fates of many aristocrats. So yeah, he'd taken away their power, but they weren't too much better than him, and the people they replaced him with weren't much better than him either. So you know, I I sort of struggle with this because <laughs> I I think you shouldn't assassinate people unless you are living under a tyranny, and if you're living under a tyranny, you don't want to replace the tyrant with another one. All right, it's complicated, nuanced. Um, probably for the best that you uh, stay clear of, given given your association with gun stuff, talk of the justification for political assassinations. <laughs> well, look, there, there is no justification for political assassination in any country I've ever lived in or even been to. Well, that does raise one like one last usage question. What I, I raised this last week um, in the wake of the Abe killing um do you have a rule about what why something is called a murder one one cat act is called a murder and another one is called an assassination i'd always assumed that assassination had a political tinge to it i think it does but it turns out that this guy didn't kill them this this guy didn't kill abe for political reasons at least if that's the story so far you know and then it's a murder yeah, and anyway, it just it feels like someone needs to spell out the 
um, the the usage rules on this a little better because I I because I feel like um, if someone went heaven forbid and I don't condone it and went and killed Elon Musk for backing out of the Twitter deal, um, people would call it an assassination and um, and in like popular culture, assassins don't just kill political figures. Um, and obviously the original assassins from the Middle East weren't, and were just hired mercenaries. Anyway, I think it's just one of those things. I just, we were on the topic and how often am I going to be on this topic? So, um, all right. On that cheery note, um, everyone should go out and get a very unique taco. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, um, talk X, uh, um, and uh, Charlie Cook, thank you so much for doing this. Okay, my favorite roundhead Floridian, uh, Charlie Cook, has left the studio. It's always great to talk to him. The only downside about when I have him on is that there are some listeners who so want him to be right and me to be wrong or me to be right and him to be wrong that they overread what are ultimately very small <laughs> uh, differences on most of these things. But uh, it was great to have him. I feel a little bad. I, I think I kind of caught him off guard with my Caesar question, but it's so rare to see Charlie on the one hand, on the other hand, something uh, like that, uh, that I think we'll just leave it in. And other than that, uh, thank you so much for listening. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.